All right, we've looked at it somewhat at the present situation as we try to make decisions as Christians. The world is still God's creation, revealing his standards. Sin hasn't reduced our responsibility. Ethics is still a social matter. The state and the church provide restraint and resources for moral decisions. Uh, we have temptations from the angelic world and, and uh, aid from the angelic world so that we don't overestimate or underestimate our situation. And of course, special revelation is, uh, is a key factor in our situation. We've been talking about uh, how history affects the validity of God's law. But now we need to move on and point out in terms of our present situation that the curse on the ground continues. God has cursed the ground. There are natural calamities and, and judgments, catastrophes, disasters uh, in the natural realm which enter into our, our moral decision-making. These calamities are uniformly presented as judgments against the unbeliever in the scriptures and as chastisements to the believer. What's the difference between a judgment and a, and a chastisement as I've been uh, laying it out here? Gray. It could be anything physical, but it has to be mainly in the intent of it. There's kind of a difference between a temptation and a, and a test. Yes. Okay, let's say there's a hailstorm, and the hailstorm breaks the windows in your house and in your neighbor's house, and, you, and your neighbor's just a fire-breathing pagan, and you're a sweet Christian. Okay? How, how can that hailstorm, appropriately, how can that hailstorm be uh, judgment for him, and why do I say it's judgment for him and chastisement for you? Well, because I know that that thing is part of all things that work together for good. It may not be a very nice thing for me. I won't be happy with it. Okay. But it will work together with other things for my good. Whereas the hailstorm in his house is simply bad. Okay. <laughs> all right. Let's take a situation where um, uh, a man's been living in notorious sin and God, uh, as in the case of Sodom, uh, sends a natural calamity that destroys this man or his society. Does God ever uh, do that sort of thing to Christians? Does he ever bring death or sickness upon them because of sin? Because of sin? Can they think of an obvious example? What? Thief on the cross. 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 And it goes on to indicate that God, that some of them even have fallen asleep, a euphemism for having died because of their inappropriate use of the Lord's Supper. That's what I meant, that, there's a, that for the unbeliever it's judgment. It's not redemptive, it's not for his good, it's for his ultimate ill. For the believer, however, such um, uh, natural calamities or uh, things coming from God should be looked upon as chastisement, God's way of punishing us so that we might now return to the norm of righteousness and live lives pleasing to him. We chastise our children, but we don't judge them. Now, I don't mean that we don't ever use the word judgment, but uh, you might want to keep that in mind. If you love your child, you chastise your child. But God judges unbelievers. Unmitigated wrath. Yeah. This might be a little bit uh, appeal, but you would. Perhaps you might want to comment. There seems to be a trend within the 
Protestant churches today, by and large, um, to move in the direction of saying that God really does not discipline his people in a, in a sense. In other words, if anything bad happens to you, it's either because there's a lack of faith or you're not living close to him. Or, um, In other words, these things do not come from God, they come from the devil. And primarily... As a lack of outside of the reformed faith, but yeah, but is a lack of sin sin is a lack of faith sin? Well, yes, yes. Uh, not walking close to God is that sin? Certainly. Okay, so isn't that not an illustration of what we're saying? God chastises us. Okay, I'm, I agree with that, but the source of of the ills that befall us is not God. In other words, God would never want to do anything that would be um, injurious. Let's say. In a, even in a temporal way, to uh, God's children, to his children. Therefore... Is that a biblical doctrine? I don't believe it's biblical, but what I'm asking is why... There seems to be a, uh, a movement within uh, broad-screen evangelicalism, uh, I would well. say prim primarily through an influence of the charismatic movement, that if something happens to you that's not good, it's of the devil, God didn't, was not responsible. That may be. And I was wondering why you might see this. Well, obviously, nobody, nobody who says that has a very clear apprehension of the sovereignty of God, first of all. Because even if you believe that somehow God channeled all these sorts of devices through Satan, the fact is God's still sovereign over the devices of Satan, and whatever takes place is by God's choosing. Consequently, I mean, if, if I can use the expression, God's not off the hook just because, you know, you say Satan is his messenger in this case. Um, and so the sovereignty of God, if it were uh, properly understood would keep a man from drawing that conclusion. Moreover, it's not a biblical doctrine, and I think, if anything, it's, what you're saying sounds to me like it uh, originates in a sentimental view of God rather than in a view of God that says he's a consuming fire. No, no, now you're getting, my, my question is, why is it, do you see, why is it the church would, would be embracing this type of teaching? And realizing that it is unbiblical, but why is it they would embrace it? Well, I think for the same reason the church always embraces less than biblical doctrine, because it's more pleasing to men. Not very often the church has come up with doctrines that are unbiblical because the doctrines are going to make people really unhappy. It happens from time to time, but usually it's because, you know, people like to hear that sort of thing. They don't like to hear that God, in fact, will see to the death of some people for not taking the Lord's Supper properly. Well, the curse on the ground continues, and I want to go on to make the point that it gives us temptations. Uh, we face temptations for that reason. Um, and some very tough problems arise in our moral decision-making because of the curse on the ground. And when we face those situations, we mustn't forget that they're the result of sin, even if they're natural calamities. All right, our present situation also shows the disruption of interpersonal relationships. Disruption of interpersonal relationships. Um, our society and people around us and groups of people are not only a source of moral strengthening and moral restraint, but in fact other people become a source of moral defeat and tempters and bad influences on us. Isn't that right? And so we have the problem of pornography and censorship and the media and uh, our children running with the wrong crowd and uh, having to work for sinful employers and all the rest. One of the reasons we, in our present situation, have tough situations to face as Christians is because of that disruption of the interpersonal relationship that God intended at creation. And then finally, notice that there are resources for um, righteous living. 
available in our present situation that mustn't be overlooked. Resources for righteous living. Romans 6.14 Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. We have resources for, uh, for righteous living that even the Old Testament Jews who were um, in, in a real sense still under law not able to, um, to use. Being under the uh, age of grace and the accomplishment of redemption and the power of the Holy Spirit, sin will not have dominion over us. And notice also this interesting passage in 2 Corinthians 9.8. Paul says, and God is able to make all grace abound unto you, that you, having always all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. Look at the string of alls and everys in that verse, and just over and over and over again, Paul wants you to see the resources for righteous living that you have. God is able to make all grace abound unto you. So that you, having always, that is at all times, all sufficiency in everything may abound into every single good work. Right, so there are resources for righteous living in the grace of God that mustn't be forgotten when we face difficult situations in terms of our uh, situation, our situational morality. You want to make a, a decision, a moral decision on the basis of the goal of ethics and the situation in which you live, Look at the past situation, creation, fall, and redemption. Look at the future situation, the coming of God's kingdom and the return of Jesus Christ. And look at the present situation, the world, sin, social matters, temptations, special revelation, the curse on the ground, the disruption of interpersonal relations, and the resources for righteous living. Now, I, I'm willing to say that if anybody does all of his homework and takes all those factors that we've been looking at for two weeks into account, that I don't have any worry about you doing situation morality because you always make decisions which are true to the Word of God. That, in the ultimate sense, is my answer to Joseph Fletcher in situation ethics, although we'll be saying something more particular later. But let's finish up this discussion of the goal of ethics by trying to formulate, finally, the goal of Christian ethics. What is the goal of Christian ethics? Okay, let me see. Who can we pick on? George Coxhead. Since he always comes late, we'll make him answer the second hour. <laughs> George, what is the first catechism question and answer? What is, the is that the shorter or larger catechism? Short. You want to give the larger? No, okay, give the shorter then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The chief end of man. Does that mean the chief outcome of man? Well, in some cases, but I mean, it means the chief goal, right, or aim of man's life. What is he here for? Okay, so what's, what's the goal of ethics? Catechism tells us the answer. To glorify God. Okay, we can go on to the... What about enjoying forever? Oh, good. I'm glad Annie's here. We need somebody to challenge these simple answers. <laughs> The end of life is God's glory and our personal enjoyment. There's a sense in which the catechism is right in reflecting, not a sense in which, the catechism I think is right and does reflect the biblical teaching where in a sense the goal of ethics is theocentric and in a sense the goal of ethics is anthropocentric. Anthropocentric meaning man-centered. 
It's God-centered and it's man-centered. And I think those are indicated here. We glorify God in everything we do. Okay, so we're aiming uh, to center our activity on God. On the other hand, our aim is to enjoy him forever. And as we're thinking of ourselves, too, and it's anthropocentric when we talk about that. These two are taught in the Bible together. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, we see the theocentric center of Christian ethics. Whether, therefore, ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever you do, every bit of it is for God's glory. I don't think any of us have any trouble with that doctrine, probably understand it fairly well. But this anthropocentric formulation of the goal of ethics can be found also. For instance, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 23. Paul says, And I do all things for the gospel's sake. Why? In order that I may be a joint partaker thereof. Paul does everything that he does for the sake of the gospel. But he does everything for the sake of the gospel that he might enjoy the benefits of the gospel. Or look at um, Philippians 3 at verse 8 and following. Yes, verily, I count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. That seems to express the idea that the goal is the glory of God, Christ Jesus his Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and do count them but refuse that I may gain Christ, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of mine own, even that which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Why? In order that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection from the dead. Paul does everything, you see, for the sake of Christ, but that he might profit thereby. Okay, so in the Bible, the goal of ethics, just as in the Catechism, is both theocentric and anthropocentric. Uh, remember that the law of God in the Bible is given for man's good. Uh, if people were fully convinced of that fact, the, the theonomic dispute today would be paled into the background. There wouldn't be any problem at all. If we could only understand that God gives his law to us because he loves us. He gives us his law because he wants good for us. He wants good to be realized. You see, this is, the, this is what's going to be best for you and for your culture. Uh, remember Deuteronomy 10.13. You know, God has given all these statutes and ordinances and commandments this day for your good. And that's much different than the pagan gods around Israel. The pagan gods demanded Moloch worship. What did Moloch worship entail? What's that? Children. Child sacrifice, the offering of your children to God. Why don't you stop and think about those of you who are parents. Can you imagine following a religion where devotion meant putting your child on the heated coals of an altar, alive, screaming? And yet that's what the gods of the pagan tribes around Israel required. But God said, I've given you my laws and commandments and statutes for your good. Now, I dare say, we wouldn't have any trouble with the law of God if we understood this. God's glory in following his law brings our enjoyment. It's for our good. In the gospel ethic, if you come to the New Testament, you notice that in the gospels that the ethic there is not totally altruistic. Self-sacrifice is taught, right? We are to uh, take up our cross and follow Christ, and we are to... Uh, 
to think of others before ourselves. So there's an altruistic strain in the Gospels. But it's not completely altruistic. Jesus says there's no man who's given up house or home or family or whatever that won't be rewarded a hundredfold in this life and all the more with eternal life uh, in the age to come. And so even in the Gospel, self-sacrifice, if I can put it crassly, pays off. God is not a Moloch-type God who expects you to give your best, to sacrifice yourself or your children, and then nothing comes of it. No. God rewards his people. Obedience is for our good, and even self-sacrifice brings eternal reward. Well, the goal of ethics is the glory of God or our enjoyment. Can anybody think of a way we could bring those two together into one formulation now? The Catechism says, Chief in demands glorify God and enjoy him forever. What would be another way, a scriptural category, that might combine these two? And let me ask you also to, to be thinking of a category that combines those two, as well as this concern for historical progress that we've been uh, noting in the situational perspective of ethics as we've studied it. Okay, where is the glory of God, the enjoyment of man, expressed in terms of a uh, 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 category of biblical thinking that also uh, takes account of historical progression? Yeah, yeah, of Restoration. Yeah, it seems to me that's the enjoyment of, of man, restoration. But that doesn't glorify God. But I'm saying that the stress lies on restoration. God's not restored, we are. Health is given back to us in status. He didn't get anything. No, obedience is really under the, under the uh, normative perspective of ethics. That has to do with law. Let's think of a goal. Goal's not obedience. The point is, what is the aim of our obedience? Covenant fellowship with God might do that. However, historical progress is not incorporated there because covenant fellowship would have been possible totally apart from the progress of history. I heard the answer down here. Exactly. We pray, don't we? Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. You know, we're trying to formulate the goal of ethics. What is that above all that we're supposed to be aiming for? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, or his righteousness. Now, you see, the kingdom of God embodies the glory of God, since he's the king, but it involves our enjoyment, too, because as the king, he rules over, with, rules over us with blessing and protects us and, and that sort of thing. And yet the kingdom of God has a development in history. It shows historical progress. It's typified in the Old Testament. It's realized in the New. It will be consummated at the return of Jesus Christ. Question. Um, I think I'm like most people in that I have a very fuzzy idea as to what it means to glorify God. Could you maybe bring it down a little concrete? I have an answer. So I'm Go ahead. Very good. Okay, if we sing praise to God, we sing a hymn that magnifies who he is or what he's done for man, that is glorifying him. I'm not quite sure why you say you have a fuzzy idea because I'm sure we're not telling you here anything that you wouldn't have thought of yourself. Um, so what's the problem beyond that that, that uh, generated the question, Dale? I'm not quite sure what the problem is beyond that. 
All right, the full bucket difficulty in Van Til's uh, language. God is the all-glorious one. I mean, Van Til says it's the, the bucket of God's glory is full to the brim. And if the bucket is full, how can we add anything to it? How can we add glory to the all-glorious God? The answer is, uh, well, in Vantillian terms, in terms of the paradoxes of uh, divine revelation, sovereignty, and responsibility. But even more, let's remember that we don't give anything to God that he's lacking in himself. He uh, gives the privilege to us to reflect that full glory that he has. So is it more a pointing to God rather than... Yes, I don't think it's a filling up of God. I think it is, in fact, a recognition of what is in God, what he has done. Is it also causing his glory to be acknowledged by Yes, and that would, that would be included in the coming of God's kingdom, thy will be done. Sure. We glorify God when we, uh, when we expand his kingdom. All right. So that's the goal of ethics. You can think of it in terms of the catechism, glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Or you can think of it in terms of Jesus' words, seek first the kingdom of God. I was going to go into the decision-making process now according to this approach to ethics, but I think I'm just going to have to start taking a meat cleaver to some of these notes and cutting out a section. This might be a good one to omit. Uh, because some questions arise. Okay, if we're going to do situation ethics, and you've told us all these principles, how do we make decisions using those principles? And uh, the answer is, obviously, you've got to compare your present situation to the ideal situation, as Scripture gives it, and then calculate a means to achieve that from where you are. In some cases, that's very easy to do. But in some cases, it's not. What do you do in the cases where it's not easy to do? Well, that goes to show you why the Word of God is so central to Christian ethics, because God's got to show us the means for achieving His glory and kingdom. And he doesn't leave it to our own devices to figure out a way of doing that. Moreover, God has got to regenerate us and enlighten us by his Spirit so that we can understand the Scriptures and how they apply. But now, if, if the means of achieving the ideal situation, the kingdom of God, his glory, and our enjoyment, if the means, uh, a proper apprehension of the means, requires that the moral agent ha has been changed by the Holy Spirit, and that God's word is going to be read to find direction, doesn't that just prove the point about our triangle? So we've been talking about the goal of ethics. And what I've said is when it comes to decision-making, when you try to achieve the goal, uh, very often in troublesome situations, in, in difficult uh, issues of morality, uh, the attempt to achieve this goal, to find the, the proper means for achieving it, will drive us from the goal to the standard of ethics, God's word, God's law, to find out how we're to do this. And to properly understand the goal, we're driven also to the motive aspect of ethics, or the personal side of ethics, seeing that we as moral agents have to be changed and enlightened, just as the word of God must be properly understood so that we can achieve the goal. Okay, so as we have said over and over again in the last two weeks, the goal, motive, and standard all require each other in Christian ethics. Okay, that's the end of our remarks on um, the goal approach to ethics. We've had an introduction to ethics and the philosophy of ethics. Now we've seen the goal of ethics pursued by the unbelieving world and also uh, from a biblical perspective we've looked at some detail, in some detail, at the goal, the formulation of that goal and the means to achieve it.
Do you have any questions on the material given thus far? Paul? You were um, talking about, uh, I forgot who it was now, but the opposing um, people you, you were opposing, um, they had the utilitarian approach to ethics. Um, the ones that we were saying, they had, one, one of them had as a, um, Was his name Mill? Mill, John Stuart Mill. Right. Um, I think at one time he said that, that he said one of his um, principles for ethics was that um, he was trying to set over uh, set the pleasure over against the pain. And one of your objections to that was that um, it's hard to measure to measure it accurately. Yeah. And I agree with that. That it's difficult to have an accurate measurement, say of pleasure or pain, but um, I wouldn't go so far as to throw it out as a, uh, as a standard by which we can make our ethical decisions. As a matter of fact, I know I make a lot of my ethical decisions based on um, the amount of pleasure or pain it will cause me. And although we couldn't definitively um, determine uh, you know, a scale by which we could um, set pleasure and pain over against one another. Uh, I was wondering if you can't, if, if, if that isn't a, a valid um, standard by which to make ethical decisions in certain situations. Well, Paul, when you said that you, as a matter of fact, do use a uh, uh, comparison of pleasure and pain in making some of your decisions, were you doing descriptive ethics or normative ethics? I mean, were you engaging in, in descriptive ethics? Or were you engaging in normative ethics? Do you recall that di that distinction in our first lecture? No, sir. Okay. If I describe the ethical decision-making of an African tribe and what they think is good and bad and, and uh, all this sort of thing, I am doing descriptive ethics. I'm describing somebody's ethical system or practice. But I'm not thereby giving what is the proper thing to do. Not necessarily. It might be and it might not be. Okay, so when you said, you as a matter of fact do consider pleasure and pain, I take that to be a descriptive ethical statement, that in, that in the practice of your ethics, you do consider pleasure and pain. But the fact that you do it, you wouldn't want us to take to mean that we ought to do that, or even that you ought to do that. What you want to ask yourself is, is that a proper standard? Well, I would, I would say that it is. All right, let's say that it is. Do you think that you live unto yourself and that the only person's pleasures and pains that count are yours? Oh, no. Oh, okay. Well, say, I say I grant that you could measure pleasure and pain within your own body. I mean, you would have some way of knowing which draws you uh, with a greater strength than the other. But I'm not sure that you would be able to compare your pleasures with my pains, or vice versa. Or even your pleasures with my pleasures, or vice versa. You're saying I couldn't compare my pleasures with your pleasures, or my pains with your pains? No, would How could you? Well, although you couldn't define it no, I'm not talking about you can't get it, you know, down to a real accurate judgment. I don't know how you would judge it at all. Well, am I in am I am I having pleasure or pain right now? <laughs> now I want you to tell me. Am I? If I were to go up there and no, 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 just keep would, keep at a distance, Paul. No, <laughs> Am I now having pleasure or pain? 
Well, I think, <laughs> I think, I think there are um, means by which I can determine whether you are having extreme excruciating pain or whether you're having oh. ecstatic pleasure. Yes. So what am I having right now? Pleasure or pain? What side of this you know, great continuum am I on, or this, this watershed am I on? Well, am I having pleasure or pain right now? I think to the degree I can determine that you're not in excruciating pain. Not, I huh? wouldn't say that you're in ecstatic pain. As, as a matter of fact, I was biting my cheek and it didn't feel very good at all I'm glad you finally answered <laughs> well, okay. so you're saying that there, you cannot distinguish that there, that I'm there saying there's no way you can measure the, the thing and compare people's pleasures and pains no way I disagree with that because okay let's get back am I having pleasure or pain right now Paul? <laughs> We're gonna, if we can't do it in the easy cases, we're certainly not going to be able to do it in the hard cases. But we have to decide who gets executed, who lives, um, you know, who's aborted, and you know, all these sorts of things. Who, you know, who gets enough food to eat and who doesn't. All those tough decisions follow after being able to do it on the easy scale. But you can't even do it on the easy scale. So why do you think that you'd be able to, to use pleasure and pain as the standard of ethics? Well, Unless you're being selfish. Now, I think your pleasure and pain you might be able to use. But I don't see how you can take account of all of God's people around you, and you would certainly want to do that. Well, let's take your, your example that you use on yourself. Let's say if you use um, one half a pound of pressure um, in, a, in a set of dentures upon a human tongue, okay. you could estimate that that would um, cause a certain amount of pain, and you could also estimate that, that if it were doubled, it would be worse, or if it would be tripled, that Paul, you're being too simplistic. That isn't true. I mean, these things just are not true. Give me an illustration. We go to the Olympics, right? Okay. okay. Here's the guy who's going to lift 200 pounds. All right? right? We know that the exertion he's going to put out when you put 400 pounds up there, or 300, is mathematically proportionate to the number of pounds added. Is that right? right. No, it's wrong. That just isn't true. The fact that a... a People do not, their strength does not go up proportionately like that, and the, and the pain that it causes various people is not proportionate to the number of pounds on the bar. If a man lifts 200 pounds, okay, presses 200 pounds in the Olympics, and does it with ease, okay, you put the 200 pounds on me, and it's going to hurt a great deal. <laughs> right? What's the difference? Well, he has, he, you know, he maybe have a certain body build and developed his muscles that I, that I haven't maybe bigger, maybe smaller, whatever it may be. And so the amount of pain is not proportionate to the number of pounds on the bar. There's no way that you can measure, even in a mundane matter of uh, a physical pain. Let's talk about this more after class, okay? Great. I'm wondering about the question then of measuring enjoyment. Yes. Do we have to measure enjoyment? What I said is in the decision-making process, we, under, we ask what the ideal is, what, this, what the situation we're in is, and then we find the means to achieve it. Now, the means to achieve the goal, well, if the goal is enjoyment, the goal is not a certain amount of enjoyment over against a certain lesser amount of enjoyment, and so no measurements involved. The enjoyment is enjoyment as defined by the Word of God. But more importantly, I don't need a calculus even for that enjoyment because God's Word gives me the means to that enjoyment. And so that's why we escape the uh, horrors and the, uh, and the fallacies of utilitarianism. That is, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst is a state of enjoyment in the sense of that God has said, you are blessed, you are. Yes. Even, though, even though we may say, oh, I don't feel very enjoyed. Yeah, that's right. Okay. May I ask Paul, are you 
this is what I think you're saying. We believe our bodies are the temple of God, so if something hurts us, that's a warning that we shouldn't do it. And we make decisions like that. Is that what you're talking about? The simple decisions of your own favor and pain to your own body in your daily life, like you know, cut the hot stove because it would burn our hands. Don't let you don't let doctors poke stuff. you with needles because it may save you from polio. I was saying that. That's part of what I was saying. I was just saying it seems to me as though you you can um, make like you can make decisions based on, on what will cause you say perhaps some less pain. I think the I think what we need to say here is that in the easy cases, uh, pleasure is preferable to pain, but all things aren't always equal and therefore that doesn't help us very much when it comes down to genuine decisions because there's a lot of times when we do want a certain degree of pain because we think the outcome is going to be greater pleasure. For instance, as I said a minute ago, I might very well want an injection um, in order that I might be saved from a worse disease or I might even undergo open heart surgery so that I could live a little bit longer. It doesn't feel very good but the outcome is much better. And so it is not an ever a simple matter of just pleasure and pain. And besides pleasure and pain, we've, we've been talking this whole thing of physical pleasures and pains. And that's just very reductionistic. I mean, life is much more than the body. You must take into account emotional, intellectual, aesthetic pleasures and pains and all that. And there's some things, some things I watch on TV cause me a great deal of aesthetic pain. And I don't know how I compare that with what the dentist does to me. I just don't have any idea how I compare those two. Yes? Do we inspect two theonomic believers to view the same problem and come to the same conclusion. Yes, we do. Given that they are perfectly sanctified and glorified. <laughs> All right. And whenever they don't come to the same conclusion, you can be sure one of them is sinning at least more than the other one is. And that, I mean, seriously. That's true of anybody. Whenever we don't come to the right decision, we're either both wrong or we're a little bit right uh, or uh, one's right and the other's wrong. And the wrongness is always connected in some sense with our inability to use the Word of God. Again, the troublesome questions in, in the goal orientation are taken care of because we believe in the triangle. That drives us to the standard and to the motive. We need greater enlightenment to understand, our, uh, to understand the standard uh, better so we can apply it to our situation and our goals. Right, I'm beginning to wonder if I'm going to get to the existential perspective or the personal perspective in ethics and uh, I think I better put an end to questions on this and go ahead and jump into the uh, motive or existential or personalistic perspective on ethics and at least get down the road a bit. I'm going to have to depart from my uh, my lesson plans and finish it up next week when we start uh, the Law of God. But since we had two weeks given to the Law of God, that won't be quite so bad. And now we're going to be studying that side of the uh, triangle that deals with the person or the agent in ethics. His motives and his traits, his abilities, all the rest. We've already seen that God's Word is part of our situation. God's law is part of that situation in which we live. And we've already seen that the law points beyond itself to our goal. That is, it gives us an aim of ethics, tells us to seek the glory of God, tells us that God's uh, word will, if obeyed, lead to our own good. 
Okay, so if we begin with the standard of ethics, the law of God, that drives us to the goal of ethics, the glory of God. God's law requires that we do all things for his glory. On the other hand, if we start with the goal of ethics, we see that uh, we have to consider our situation, and our whole situation includes the standard God has given us in his word. All right, so the standard requires the goal, and the goal requires the standard. But notice also, when we examine the, um, the situation, situational perspective or the goal of ethics, we find that we ourselves as moral agents are a crucial element in the situation. So part of the situation is the moral agent himself. Indeed, the whole purpose of analyzing our situation is to see how the facts bear on us and upon the decisions that we have to make. The very reason we look at this situation, we take a look at the goal orientation to ethics, is so that we can understand what we are supposed to do. Thus, there's a natural progression from the situational perspective to what I'm calling the existential or dispositional perspective, or the personal perspective. Let me put disposition down here, too. I will, from time to time, use all of these terms, and I don't mean anything different by them, not usually, anyway. Uh, it's all standing for this side of the triangle over here. Now, likewise, you can proceed from the normative perspective, the standard of ethics, to the existential perspective. You can proceed down here to the agent in the following way. You notice that God's law is addressed to who? Well, to moral agents, right. God's law doesn't stand out there by itself. It's always addressed to us to the self, to the person, to the agent who has to make decisions. Therefore, we must think about the self if we're to understand how the law applies. The person to whom the law is addressed has got to use the law properly, and therefore the law requires something to take place in the moral agent. The agent must understand its meaning and its concrete application. Moreover, you'll notice how the agent of ethics is very central in the standard of ethics itself. The great commandment is what? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's right. So the standard of ethics, the greatest commandment of all, requires love. That is to say, requires a certain disposition or trait or motive in the person or the moral agent. This is a necessary and sufficient of good works. Love is. It fulfills the whole law, the Bible says. Consequently, you can look upon the whole of ethics as an attempt to make yourself more loving. What's Christian ethics? Well, one, in one sense, Christian ethics is pursuing the kingdom of God. In another sense, Christian ethics is the attempt to obey all the laws of God. But in another sense, Christian ethics can, is simply summarized as trying to make ourselves more loving people. It's an attempt to purify our motives and our dispositions and our traits. And therefore, it turns out that normative ethics or the standard of ethics drives us to the existential perspective of the moral agent. Um, it requires that we give some clear and independent attention to the matter of our motives, the moral agent, the characteristics or virtues of the godly person. And now I want to complete the triangle here. It also turns out that the existential perspective pushes us to the situational perspective and to the normative perspective. Everybody with me? Am I going too fast? All right. See, I've, I've shown how there's this uh, reciprocal relation between standard and goal, and I've shown how standard leads to the moral agent or the dispositional perspective, and how the goal leads to the moral agent. 
or the yeah, dispositional perspective. What I want to show is that the dispositional perspective leads back to the standard and to the goal. In a sense, our situation is a motive in ethics. Our situation is a motive in ethics. If we remember that Christ is returning, then we will purify our motives. Right? And it will motivate us to good works. Okay, so it turns out that the moral agent, his disposition, is affected by his goals. The facts make a personal impact on me as an individual. They change the way I look at things, and thus they change the decisions that I make in life. So also, the Word of God, the Law of God, is a motivation for me, for it's a word of life. The psalmist says that the Law of God restores the soul. Restores the soul. That is, it does something to me. Consequently, as a moral agent, I'm led to look at the law of God as a way of restoring myself and purifying my motives. God's word examines me. God's word examines my heart. Think of Hebrews, the fourth chapter, where the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and does what? Pierces right down to what? To the thoughts and the intents of the heart. See, God's word is active. It's doing something to me. It's either hardening my heart because I'm not responding to it, or it's, it's, it's getting right down you see, under my flesh, right into my bones, right down to the, to the very thoughts and intents of my heart. It makes me a different person. It motivates me to good works. What I'm trying to say is God's Word is not only information. God's Word is power. God's Word does something to me. It accomplishes things in my life. And so you see then that the standard requires the goal and the goal requires the standard. The goal requires the agent and the agent requires the goal. The agent requires the standard and the standard requires the agent. Now, that's, that's my little summary um, exposition trying to demonstrate for you again that in Christian ethics we have to have goal, motive, and standard. And we can't have one without the other. And now we're coming to the uh, not to the situational, to the existential perspective, we're going to start studying the moral agent and the whole process of personal sanctification. I think when we, uh, when we start to describe the moral agent in Scripture, the most basic thing we can say of the moral agent is that he is made in the image of God. Who am I? What is this person who is trying to make a, a proper moral decision? Well, I'm the image of God. The ethical agent's made as the image of God, or made in the image of God. And that's the most basic characterization of the ethical self, and it's the most basic reason why we are obligated to act in an ethical way. At base, the reason why we must perform in an ethical fashion is because we are God's image who is trying to make a, a proper moral decision. Well, I'm the image of God. The ethical agent's made as the image of God, or made in the image of God. And that's the most basic characterization of the ethical self, and it's the most basic reason why we are obligated to act in an ethical way. At base, the reason why we must perform in an ethical fashion is because we are God's image. That's also the most basic reason why we are able to act in an ethical way, why we are able to do the will of God. Man is responsible to act ethically, and man is able to act ethically both because man is the image of God. Do you understand the difference? 
One's obligation and the other's enablement. And both come from the fact that we're the image of God. God has put us on this earth so that we might be like Him. Uh, we have a need to imitate Him, to act in ways similar to His ways. And so in ethics, uh, in biblical ethics throughout the Bible, you'll find an emphasis upon imitating God. What is the fourth commandment? Why is it we are to work six days and rest on the seventh? Because that's the pattern of God's work, working six and resting on the seventh. You see how the image of God, the imitation of God, is part of ethics, even there in the law of God. Or in the book of Leviticus, this principle comes out over and over again. You shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. God says his holiness is to be reflected in us. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 48, Jesus says, Therefore you are to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's one of the foundational principles of ethics, then, it seems to me, this imitation of God. We're responsible to reflect his holiness in our lives. However, as we know from the situational perspective in ethics that we've studied, man is not in his original creation state, is he? He was created as the image of God, but he has fallen into sin. Now, let me challenge some of those of you who have had systematic theology. Is man still the image of God? How do you know? How can any sinner be called a reflection of God? Doesn't the Bible speak of renewal as the image of God? No, right? Only to be renewed in the image of God, which is to say we no longer have the image of God. All right? Well, Vangel has to go out the window, I guess. That's, yeah, that's a modern that's a modern analogy. Who says so? I don't know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it too. I think it's true, but I'm not. I don't believe. I think we need to go a little bit further. What does the Bible say about the image of God, Greg? Well, James does talk about using our tongues to bless God and to curse man who's made in the image. Of course, some say that's harkening back to the original name. Right. That because everything, for example, you've said has been purpose, mm -hmm. rather than some ontological being that we are. This ontological image in us. No, I said the image of God means that we're able to do certain things too. That is, uh, uh, I don't think that uh, earthworms make moral decisions, but we do. We're made in the image of God. Well, I don't want to push you too far because we don't have enough time, but. Uh, yes, says what? Well, it was after the fall, but God still refers to man in his image. Yes, okay. So man's still in the image of God, and yet the New Testament speaks of renewal of the image of God, right? You guys are supposed to know better than this. In the presbytery exam, you've been cut off. Look, it's not renewal of the image. It's renewal of man in the image of God. You got it up there. We can get back to it. 
<laughs> See how easy it is to mislead you people? Try all things and hold fast to that which is good. Man is renewed in the image of God. So man is the image of God. He's a fallen creature and man must now be restored. Well now, how are we to understand that? I think the traditional Reformed way of understanding this is the only way to make sense of all the scriptural data. Because there are some scriptures that suggest that man uh, may not be the image of God and some suggest he is the image of God. And traditionally, Reformed churches and uh, theologians of the Reformed churches have said man is still the image of God in terms of his um, abilities. Man is still an intellectual and moral creature, but man is no longer the image of God in terms of his actual performance. Okay? Or if you will, let's liken man to a car. Now, man is still a car, but he's heading in the wrong direction now. He's not using his machinery in the right way. He still is the image of God, but he must be renewed so the image of God is doing uh, the imitation of God. He must be reflecting the holiness of God, yes. Yes, but to say that... Uh that he's still in, he's still the image of God in his ability, do you going to say that he, he has the ability then to uh, perform right? Saying that he still has the ability but not the performance? In the creational sense, he is still the sort of thing that makes moral decisions. Yes, he still has the ability. But he doesn't have the ability to go in the right direction. You see, you mustn't confuse um, uh, ethical ability, you see, there are, some, there are some creatures that don't even enter the moral arena. Earthworms and uh, eagles and uh, cars and things like that. Man is still in the ethical arena. He still has the ability to make those sorts of decisions. But he doesn't make them right. That is the qu there's, an, there's an equivocation on the word ability here is yeah, what I'm trying to point out. Not for me, it's not. It's very easy for Arminian to read an implication oh. into that that you would say, no, that's not there. Yeah, and I'm glad you asked the question so all the latent Arminians won't make that. <laughs> right. Now, I don't mean by that an ability to do the right, but I mean the ability to make moral decisions. He's still the image of God, but he's not imitating God. I was going to say, Burkhardt seems to put it where he says the abilities to, to imitate that is man as man, but the fact that he is using all those, now this seems to fit into Vantillian uh, theology because he's using all his manly gifts, uh, God-given gifts as man, in order to not image God, but to do just the opposite. In other words, he's taking the, the truth, he's taking all that he has, and he suppresses it and uses it entirely the wrong way. Yes. So that it's, he's no longer the image, and that he's no longer doing what God has told him to do. In the sense that he's not imitating God, right, but he is still the image. He's still man. Well, he's, still, he's, he's also still the image verbal, of God. A verbal distinction. All right, let's talk about renewal here for a minute. Notice in Leviticus 11.45 that the idea of renewal in the image of God is found. It's not just in the New Testament, but it's in the Old as well. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's because of God's redemptive work in man that he says, Be holy, for I am holy. The particular reason why the comparison between the holiness of God and our holiness is emphasized. And the reason why that reflection is possible is that God has redeemed his people. Of course, this is a New Testament doctrine, as you know. Colossians 3.10, And having put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. Put on the new self, 
renewed according to the image of the one who created him. Well, that's soteriological renewal, isn't it? It's salvation unto knowledge. Ephesians 4.24, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and the holiness of truth, or in true holiness. Romans 8.29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to become conformed to the image of his Son. And so the goal of our predestination is conformity to the image of God's Son, our Savior. Ephesians 2.10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And of course, there's the whole notion of the renewal of man in God's image at the consummation as well. 1 Corinthians 15.49 And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. God's going to consummate our moral progress so that we bear his heavenly image eternally on the final day. Or Philippians 3.21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of that power that he has even to subject all things unto himself. I think of 1 John 3.2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that if he should appear, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. See, all these passages talk about resembling or uh, being in comparison with or imitating Jesus Christ on the final day. We are going to be brought to the point in our vital union with the Savior where we actually have the mind of Christ, where Christ lives in us. Having been crucified with Christ, we can say it is no longer we ourselves who live, but rather who Christ, it is Christ who lives in us. So that the life which we live in the flesh, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and delivered himself for us. Galatians 2.20 and then also in the New Testament the church as members are considered members of the body of Christ the one body of Christ and that has tremendous ethical implications if we are members of the body of Christ um, let's look at some of the ethical implications that the Bible draws out from our being renewed as the image of God Romans 6 verses 5 and 6 and 11 to 14. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, so that we should no longer be in bondage to sin. Verse 11 says, Even so reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey the lust thereof. Neither present your members unto sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves unto God as alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law, but under grace. Because Christ rose from the dead, you are to imitate him in that resurrection, in newness of life, not letting sin have dominion over you. Or 2 Corinthians 3, at verse 18. Notice how we find another ethical implication from renewal in Christ's image. 2 Corinthians 3 at verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, even as we obtain mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, 
commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. There are ethical implications if we are renewed uh, in, into the same, if we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Ephesians 4, uh, 22 uh, to the end of the chapter points out that if we've been renewed after Christ, then there are certain things we won't do and certain things we will. That you put away as concerning your former manner of life the old man that wax corrupt after the lust of deceit that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man that after God has been created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away falsehood, speak ye truth each one with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Don't be angry. I'm sorry, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no more, and on and on and on, the ethical implications of being renewed in the image. Or Philippians, the third chapter, verses 9 to 11 and 14 to 21. And be found in him not having a righteousness of mine own, even that which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal unto the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye are otherwise minded, this also shall God reveal unto you, only whereunto we have attained by that same rule, let us walk. Brothers, be imitators together of me, and mark them that so walk, even as ye have us as an example, for many walk of whom I told you often. And now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is perdition, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who shall fashion anew the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory, according to the working whereby he is able even to subject all things unto himself. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17. In fact, more particularly after that. We can't take time to read all these. I've been reading an awful lot of scripture for a number of minutes here because I wanted to be impressed upon you. We don't usually think in these categories, but biblical ethics requires us to think of ourselves as the image of God and those who have been renewed in the image. And that has severe, important, significant ethical implications for us. Indeed, the Bible often puts before us the imitation of Christ as a motive for ethics. Let's, let's just notice how often the, the imitation of Christ is a motive for Christian ethics. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. This is not simply talking about the fact that we are the image of God and therefore certain things follow, but it's saying we should attempt to be the image of God. We should attempt to imitate Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, Be ye imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. Paul says, I imitate Christ, and therefore you should imitate me. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. I beseech you, therefore, be ye imitators of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, who shall put you in remembrance of my ways, which are in Christ, even as I teach everywhere in every church. Want to, this is just an aside, but you, know, you may want to stop and think about that. How, how many of us could, could write that to a church? Be imitators of me because I'm such an imitator of Christ. Because all of my ways are in Christ. And so that if you'll take me as your ethical example, you will in fact have Christ as your ethical example. 
I'll tell you, this is a very heavy side of the moral triangle. First step. Uh, is the reason the motive, the moral reason we want to imitate Christ I'm not sure that those two can be set over against each other. Uh, and so I do, I do it just because it's my duty, or I do, do I do it because I love him? Do I, really, do I really love him if I don't do it, seeing that it's my duty? Or am I really doing my duty if I don't love him? I mean, I just don't see how you can separate those two. But what we're talking about here is uh, imitating Christ is a motive for ethics. We don't say, what's the motive for the motive? We say, this is a motive. We wish to be renewed in the image of God and we wish to imitate our Savior. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all that believe in Macedonia and Acacia. Well, I just ask you whether the church... Anybody in the church would have the audacity to be that kind of an example. But Paul says, you are. If you imitate us, then you too should be ethical examples. Notice the social responsibility you bear then. You mustn't ever forget that when you make an ethical decision, you are setting a pattern of godliness before those who know you and witness your behavior or attitudes. And that pattern of godliness should be an imitation of the apostles who, in turn, imitated Christ. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, and on and on. See, Christ left you an example that you should follow in his steps. 1 John 2, verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. In Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Be ye therefore imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, even as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God for an odor of a sweet smell. So it turns out that this renewal in the image of God is one of the strongest motives for ethics that we find in the scriptures and it has tremendous ethical implications. We've seen that God is holy and he expects us to be holy and perfect like he is. Not only do we have the indicative, I am holy, therefore you are holy, but we have the imperative, the exhortation, be holy, obey on the basis of what you are in terms of creation and redemption. The image of God, you see, is the ground for our moral behavior and it's also the reason for our moral behavior. You understand the difference there? The ground of our moral behavior. This is what enables us to act morally. But it's also the reason why we are to act morally because we are to be the image of God. Or if you want, I mean, you have to understand the distinction, but having understood the distinction, it makes perfect sense to say, become what you are. Right? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, Paul says in Philippians 2. 
there you find the image of Christ is both a motive in the sense of an inward motivating power, but it's also the ground of the exhortation itself. It's the cause as well as the reason for our ethical behavior. The image of God is the stimulus for our behavior, and it's also the ideal of our behavior. Now, I'd like to talk about the process of personal sanctification. We'll just get started tonight and then pick it up again next week. The process of personal sanctification. We're talking about how does God develop a moral person? How does God make one holy? How does God bring us to be his image and renewed in his image? And the first point we need to make in the process of personal sanctification has to do with the law of God. We must see the need for but impotence of God's law. In sanctification, God's law cannot be put aside, and yet God's law is by no means sufficient for sanctification. And I hope that at least in this sympathetic audience that you will know in my own teaching, I am just as zealous for the first half of that truth as I am for the second. I don't want to see another pattern of holiness suggested but the law of God, but I'd be the last person alive to ever want you to think the law of God was sufficient for ethics. Salvation necessitates sanctification. Those who are saved must be sanctified. Our moral pollution, according to the Bible, is dealt with by a definitive break with our sinful bondage and then a progressive growth in holiness. We are brought in union with Christ by means of the Holy Spirit and faith. We are recreated according to his holy image. Saving faith, of course, is faith that brings us salvation from sin, and therefore we must flee from sin. Those who are truly saved have an obligation to obey God's word, therefore. Salvation necessitates sanctification. And yet, my second point, my second sub-point here, and yet the law is powerless to enable or empower us to obey it. According to the Bible, the written law of God is but an external and condemning code which does not ensure and does not guarantee that anybody to whom it is addressed will comply with it. God says, be perfect even as I am perfect, be holy even as I am holy. But those to whom he addresses it, does the very fact that he says this make them holy? No, the law does not enable their holiness does not ensure or guarantee compliance. Rather, the new covenant in Scripture brings with it a law written upon the heart, for out of the heart are the issues of life. The new covenant is better than the older covenant precisely because now it guarantees compliance. Whereas the Old Testament Jew saw the law written on tables of stone, the New Testament child of God has the law written on the inner recesses of his heart. He is enabled to keep it by the Holy Spirit. As Ezekiel had prophesied, 
when God gives his people a new heart, they will walk in his statutes and do them. My third point is that no sinner is able to meet God's unmitigated standards. No sinner is able to meet God's unmitigated standards. In all forms, this is an aside, in all forms of perfectionism, in all forms of perfectionism, every single one of them, you will find God's standards unmitigated. The only way, it's not credible even then, but the only way you can get anywhere close to a credible form of perfectionism in Christian sanctification is by lowering the standards of God so that man might be able uh, to meet them. No sinner, however, is able to meet the unmitigated standards of God. And for that reason, the Holy Spirit must be the dynamic, the power of sanctification. According to the New Testament, I want to give you just very quickly some New Testament doctrine here. The Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead to newness of life. And in so doing, he broke the bondage of sin's power and curse. Did he break the bondage of sin's power and curse for Christ? Absolutely. Christ was dead precisely because of the bondage and the curse of sin. Having taken the sins of his people upon himself, he underwent the due punishment of death. The Holy Spirit, consequently, raised him from the dead, showing the bondage of sin to be broken. It's this same Holy Spirit, Paul teaches, who puts us in union with Christ as resurrected, so that the bondage and curse of sin no longer has dominion over us, just like it no longer has dominion over him. And thus Paul says in Romans 6, We therefore walk in newness of life, and we are dead to sin. It is nothing less than offense to the graciousness and mercy of God when a man does not recognize that the law is insufficient in sanctification. Only God by his grace, raising his son from the dead through his spirit and joining us to that son by the spirit and in the power of that spirit, only God can give us the dynamic ability to do what he says. My fourth point, the Holy Spirit, however, having said that and wishing to emphasize it all the more and to glory in the grace of God that enables our obedience, the fact remains that the Holy Spirit does not oppose or replace the law of God. The Holy Spirit is not a substitute for the law. The Holy Spirit is an enabling power for the law. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is not going to be seen by any of the inspired writers as antagonistic to that pattern of holiness after which he is named the Holy Spirit. He doesn't show antagonism to the law of God which he inspired as the pattern of holiness for God's people. Indeed, the very test of genuinely being filled with the Holy Spirit, according to John in 1 John, is loving obedience to the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit must not be set over against the law of God or seen as a replacement for God's law. He's not a substitute for the law. He's rather the power of lawful obedience. Consequently, our conclusion, our, our, in terms of this first point, is that sanctification requires the law as a pattern, but it does not require the law as power. I'm trying to use these things so it would be easy to remember. The Holy Spirit is power power to keep the pattern of the law which he inspired. 
and thus I speak of our need for, but the impotence of, God's law in personal sanctification. I think this is a good place for us to end tonight. When we come back next week, I'd like to speak a bit about the fear of God as a source of ethical integrity, and then go on to speak of God's Word as a power that does things to us, and the relationship of doctrine and life for those of us who are Christians, and especially Calvinists, who have a tendency to think of that relationship as a one-way street. The following bibliography belongs at the beginning of tape number five. At the beginning of tape number five. This is tape number six that you've just finished. Because it exceeded the length of the cassette on tape number five, we found it necessary to place it at the end of tape number six due to the importance of its content. Uh, those of you who are doing the outside reading for the course, for next week, I'd like you to um, read for the standard of ethics in my book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, chapters 2, 5, 6, and 13. I would like you to read in John Murray's book, Principles of Conduct, pages 149 to 157. I'd also like you to read in Dr. Van Til's book, Christian Theistic Ethics, chapters 11 and 12. And then a supplemental reading to those three assignments. Uh, some of you who may have done these assignments before or may be looking for even more work, uh, are, no, look, don't be skeptical. There are some in this class who may be in that category. Uh, the True Bounds of Christian Freedom by Samuel Bolton. Excellent book, reprinted by the Banner of Truth. Bolton was a Westminster divine, and I think you'll find it enlightening to read his discourse in defense of the law of God in the New Testament. The True Bounds of Christian Freedom. And then also in the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, you can look at Volume 2, Number 2, which is a symposium on biblical law, or the most recent uh, issue, Volume 5, Number 2, Puritanism and Law. Both are worthy of your perusal. Okay, then one last assignment. I'm going to go back to Murray and to my book and give you particular page numbers because these correspond to each other. In John Murray, pages 14 to 19, you'll find Murray giving his approach to the uh, what he calls uh, development between Old and New Testament morality on questions such as uh, polygamy and divorce. And then in my book, pages 97 to 116, you'll find my approach to the same question, and it's somewhat different than Murray's. The earlier reading I gave you uh, uh, is an example of Murray and I agreeing with each other and supplementing each other, and this is an example of where we would depart. So, any questions on the assignment? 97 to 116.